0: Hello and welcome to episode three of Public Health Disrupted, the brand new podcast from UCL Health of the Public. I'm Zand van Tulliken. I'm a doctor, I'm a writer, I'm a TV presenter, and I'm prepared to do pretty much anything to start a conversation on public health. And I do mean anything, whether it's editing journals on humanitarian healthcare or experimenting on my body for children's television.
1: And I'm Rochelle Burgess, a community health psychologist specializing in community-based approaches to health around the world. I'm a lecturer at UCL's Institute for Global Health, a self-confessed hippie, and as such here to talk about the importance of community, solidarity, and social change to pretty much anyone and everyone who will listen. And this podcast is about public health, but more importantly, it's about the systems we need to disrupt to make public health better. So join us monthly as we challenge the status quo and ask what needs to change and why. Each week we'll be joined by activists, scholars, artists, comedians, industry professionals and and anyone we can think of really. We want as many people from inside UCL and out to join in our conversation about public
0: health. Exactly and we're calling this podcast Public Health Disrupted because that's exactly what we want to do. We're going to be breaking down disciplinary, sectoral and geographic boundaries. We want to really understand the diverse and complex issues impacting our health. So in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the role of discrimination and structural disadvantage in the health inequalities experienced by marginalised groups of many kinds in modern Britain.
1: And the coronavirus pandemic has brought all of these sort of different realities and inequalities into urgent focus because we see that those gradients of of inequity of access and experience are front and centre in also looking at impacts of the pandemic across societies in the UK and also all around the world. And I think today what we want to sort of talk about is not the same old story. So you sort of feel like we're at this stage where we know that public health has a problem with inequalities that face as many groups as you can come up with in society. And what would be part of our new vision for change and and what public health should be about is, is much more than data, but more about solutions. And how do we make it so the world doesn't look like this um, in the future. That's what we want to do. We want a future that is better than the past. And what we want to talk about today is a big part of that. Just to let you know that since this episode was recorded, a new MBR Race UK report has found that Black women in the UK now have a fourfold higher risk of dying in pregnancy in comparison to a white woman. It's better, but not good enough. And we'll talk about why in this episode.
0: Perhaps we should introduce our guests. Today we are joined by Tanuke and Chloe, the co-founders of Five Times More, a campaign that seeks to address why black women in the UK have a five times higher risk of dying in pregnancy and in childbirth in comparison to white women. Alongside Five Times More, Tanuke is also the woman behind At Mums and Tea, a safe space online for mums to come together and support one another, as well as a newly launched podcast. Chloe works full-time in the Fetal Medicine Day Assessment Unit in the South London Hospital and is also the co-chair for Lambeth and St. Thomas Hospital Maternity Voice Partnerships.
1: Our second guest is Dr. Carol Rivas. Carol is an Associate Professor in Social Policy and Program Evaluation at the IOE Social Research Institute. Her research aims to develop practical and theoretical understandings of vulnerability and social interaction to use with linked research outputs to support instrumental changes in policy and practice. Her focus is on so-called hidden disabilities and on the intersection with race, ethnicity, and migrant status. She has expertise in a range of multidisciplinary research methods and a interest and passion for innovation, thinking outside the box, and much of her research and external engagement work really exemplifies this to a T.
0: So can we start with your campaign, Tynika and Chloe? Can you talk to us about what the campaign is and how you got started?
2: Thank you so much for having us. It's Tynika, and you forgot to um, actually mention that there's another guest here, which is Baby Eden, who's seven months hey. old. <laughs> but yes, in terms of five times more, but we are a grassroots campaign committed to addressing and changing the inequality of maternal outcomes and experiences for Black women in the UK. It's five times more because Black women in the UK are, shockingly, five times more likely to die during pregnancy, childbirth and the six-week postpartum period afterwards in the UK in comparison to white women. Now, before we go on, I'd like to point out to any pregnant women who might be listening to this that it's still relatively very safe to give birth in the UK. And the UK does have one of the lowest mortality rates in the world. But there is a disparity between who is actually dying. And that's a big part of why we started the campaign. And it's also why we're very passionate about what we do, because this has been going on for a very long time. How it came about... Yes, baby, you did. (laughs) How it came about was in 2017. I actually had a really terrible experience giving birth to my son. He's now three. I won't go into the details, but it was very traumatic. Uh, I had late diagnosed preeclampsia, which led me to be induced. And essentially, I, I just felt like I wasn't listened to by the midwife. And it led me to have an assisted birth, which in and of itself is not the end of the world. But my experience and the way I was treated I just left feeling like nobody listened to me and my pain was dismissed and I wasn't taken seriously so I decided to join forces with Chloe who I'll I'll let her speak about what she does but she runs a group called Prosperities or should I say a a social enterprise called Prosperities with what I do with mums and tea and listening to other black women in my network a lot of women actually felt the same way they felt like they weren't listened to, they weren't taken seriously, which led to them having further issues and complications and, and traumatic experiences giving birth. So when the embryo Statistics came out in 2018, it was like, well, this isn't surprising, you know? Um, and I just wanted to get to a point where I was like, you know what, enough of this. This has been going on for a really long time. And I just feel like enough is enough. So we, we've got our five steps for, uh, or six steps for mothers. Aww. We've done five steps with the RCOG to team up with them to give steps for health professionals. Uh, we've done quite a lot in terms of lobbying and getting our petition out to the government and asking the government to, you know, help us if you like, uh, get to the bottom of this. And we are just very passionate about change. We don't want to keep talking round and round in circles about something that is clearly a disparity and has been happening for a long time. We we, we want tangible action and we want it really quickly.
0: Can I just pick up there? You, you mentioned the RCOG. That's the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. And it's to me, it's it's pretty extraordinary that a campaign that is new and small in terms of the number of people running the campaign, I believe that number is still two. Is that right?
2: That's correct.
0: (laughs) That's huge. The fact that two people simply by listening to black women and black mothers have managed to take one of the Royal Colleges of Medicine and say, look, come on, we need a campaign here, and they've got on board. W- were, they, were they embarrassed they hadn't done more sooner? Were they excited to get on board? Can you just tell us a bit about that partnership?
3: So we approached the Royal College of Zangaini to ask them if they wanted to create um, steps with us, because like we said, five times more, and the disparities is, is everybody's problem. It's just not um, a black women problems, everyone problems. So we thought, you know what? the best thing to do is to join forces with Hobbs and guyney and come up with five steps. So we joined forces them and came up with the five health professional steps, which has got a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of people are happy with it. A lot of midwives are happy that the steps are there. It's steps that they are already aware of, but it's nice to get a little reminder. And it also puts mums at ease because they know that You know, something is getting done for them to have better health health outcomes.
0: Was it easy getting their attention?
3: Yes, actually it was. And they also made us part of their um, racial task force. As soon as we told them about the steps, they were happy to jump on board and support.
0: Can you talk us through the five steps for healthcare professionals and the different things that you're working on in your campaign with them?
3: So the first one is listen. And we say if a pregnant woman expresses concerns or feels like something is not quite right or is in pain, take take time to listen to her concern and anxiety without making assumption or presumption and that we all express emotion differently so some people express their anxiety in silence because not everyone makes noise I know when I was pregnant I was very silent about it I just didn't want to scream and shout and that some women do raise their voices and listen to what is being said rather than how it's being said Because a lot of the time, it's seen that sometimes black women come across aggressive. But, you know, there's different ways that we show pain, that different people show pain. And the second one is remove any barriers to communication. All women, but especially those with language barriers, it is important to make time to listen and talk with them. Take the time to explain in lame terms. What is happening and ensure that women are in control of their situation as much as possible and one thing we want to do is we want women to feel like they are empowered and encouraged and they are in charge of their own pregnancy so removing all barriers definitely gives them that sort of reassurance that you know they are in charge and we say that they should use their own translation services if required and remember that that your body language and tone is vital to helping women to feel at ease Number three is check you're providing clear information. After you have explained to women their option and made recommendations about their care, it is important that you recap or ask the women to recap the information to check that she understands the choice available to her and that you give her a chance to ask any question and to give consent. And I think a lot of the time when we go to like our maternity appointments or talk to health professionals, we're not quite sure of what they say, but we just stand there and kind of just agree and nod ahead. I can talk from my own experience. I was that mum that wasn't sure and was too embarrassed, too shy to to ask the midwife, you know, can you please repeat or can you say it again? I just kinda just kinda nodded and went along with what she said. And at the same time, if the midwife took time to build a rapport with me or to even look at me, she would have known that I had a blank look on my face. But she was probably, well, not probably, she was actually too busy looking at the screen in front of her to even acknowledge the fact that I was clueless. Number four, provide access to detailed documentation. And we said to support continued care by accurately recording any action, treatment, or medication you recommend or prescribe to a woman's response to treatment. If she declines any intervention and why, make sure that the woman and her designated support. Have access to written or online information that she can read on her own. And if a woman asks for another opinion, support her with this request. And I and I thought as health professional, it's really really important to document, especially for the fact that I I worked in maternity. I know how important it's to document because some women will come. And you ask them, you know, have you taken any medication? Have you been prescribed anything? And they will say yes. And you and you ask them, you know, what you've been prescribed. How many times a day are you supposed to be taking them? And sometimes they actually can't remember or don't know. So it's, to cover your own back as well, it's, it's, it's just better to write and document. And number five, which is my favourite one, I always say this with a smile. Be a champion. Support research and intervention in your hospital to help to end disparities in maternity outcomes. Inspire others by championing positive changes in maternity or obstetric unit. You can be a champion by valuing each and every woman in your care equally. This will help to improve outcomes for all pregnant women. And this is when I talk about, you know, this issue is is everyone's problem and that health professionals can do a lot by really championing to support um, black women and trying to reduce the disparities so that's the five steps that we've done with the RCOG.
1: Thanks thanks Cliff I mean when I was pregnant I felt very much the same way sort of like a deer in headlights anytime somebody was speaking to me and I'm also somebody who's trained in health and works in a health research space around things like patient-centered care and the voice of patients and I still sometimes struggle to find my own voice and so I really I think many women out there really welcome these recommendations for these steps to sort of close that gap in communication and also forward looking towards the need for new and innovative types of research. And I think that creates a really nice opportunity for us to talk to our second guest, talk to Carol about some of her work with other marginalized communities across the UK and how sort of research also potentially offers, offers us this opportunity to create a different world. And I sort of wondered, Carol, if you wanted to give us a, a bit of a whistle-stop tour of some of your most exciting research and community-based project linked to this idea of increasing voice and, and how we do it in health spaces?
4: Sure, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I think the bottom line is increasing voice, so getting people to be listened to and heard. So yeah, I really endorse what um, Tanuki and Claire are doing. I think it's great. I actually started focusing in research on ethnic minority groups because both my parents are migrants. And when I was young, my father couldn't even speak English very well. So I was aware from a very early age, of how he was not listened to. And so I started doing lots of research on chronic conditions and ethnic minority groups. More recently, I've also focused on disability, and I found there's a lot of overlap. Then that's because two of my children got diagnosed with disabilities, one with autism and one with a mobility issue when they were young adults. And so I can see sorts of issues they have. So it's, it's all about listening in order to get care for them. In the 2000s, I started doing this co-production participatory research that you've already mentioned, uh, Rochelle. And so this was before it was adopted in public health research and in medical research. And so we started off with patients with multiple sclerosis and gave them tools that were used in design and architectural design, which was to imagine a new future. So disrupting ideas by encouraging them to think not of healthcare. So we were looking at their journey from home to the multiple sclerosis clinic. And we asked them to actually imagine a journey from home to a hotel on holiday. And from that, we got some ideas that wouldn't have come up if they were just focusing on their journey to the clinic. So things like they needed jargon translated for them, they needed to know where they could go and have a drink that was within walking distance when you've got multiple sclerosis. And so I then went on to look at problems of people with diabetes who can't speak English very well and found that often the nurses and GPs were very well-meaning, but because they couldn't understand what was going on, even with interpreters, they would often explain for the patients so they weren't listening to them again they would say okay so you're you can't exercise because in your culture it's not very good to go outside after dark or something like that so they'd make an excuse for them that was really not appropriate and they hadn't bothered finding out mm. and i more, more recently i've been doing some work on diabetes education programs or black communities in london um, where we've used co-production or participatory techniques all the way through, from the very start to the very end. So they produced the tools that they would use in the education sessions as well, helping us to design the research and the education programmes. I think I, I, at the moment, I'd just like to say one more thing in relation to what you and Chloe are doing. They're talking about empowerment as well, and I think it's very important to draw that out, that it's not just about hearing people, but making sure marginalised groups are empowered to be able to push up against being marginalised. So if the midwife turns away to look at the screen, it's about getting her attention back as well. And so in my research, we also developed some of the tools to do that. It might be things like apps that can produce statistics that women can show for example.
1: I love that you've been doing co-production before co-production was a thing <laughs> um, and it just sort of really shows how long we've been struggling with these these ideas of the need to increase voice and, and I think one of the, the themes that seems to run through what you've been saying and Chinooking and Chloe have been saying is this its importance of us thinking about power. And I just wondered, Carol, if you could talk for a minute about maybe within that sort of last study on diabetes in, in London, is what kind of power do communities have just work within these spaces and for empowerment to happen, really? I sort of imagine that empowerment needs power to come from somewhere. And I just wondered if you could talk about how communities are bound up within that.
4: So I, I think that's a really difficult question, actually. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not sure how good an answer I can give. I think Snook and Chloe are doing very well, though they perhaps illuminate more. But I think for the research that we've been doing, it is about enabling people to develop the tools that they are going to then use. It's making sure that their voices are in there throughout. And it's also, as I said, about giving them tools. To feel empowered, you need to be able to talk to the people who are going to make the decisions. And as Snuke and Clare have shown you don't need go-betweens. So that used to be the convention I teach a module called Evidence and Policy and Practice. And I used to say that you always need to go between. You need to get lawyers on board and key decision makers commissioners. But actually what people like Snooky and Clow are showing is that you don't need that. You just need to get people to listen in the right way. So yes, things like providing evidence from research and powerful stories from research. Can help communities to build up that power. And I think that things like the Black Lives Matter movement and currently COVID have opened up opportunities for people to develop this empowerment, because I think communities in general, people, ordinary people are getting quite shocked about these things that have up till now
1: been quite hidden or quite ignored. Yeah, I, I agree. It feels like there's this real push from below that's possible now in ways that it hasn't been possible before I think it would might be nice actually for Chloe and Tanuke to jump in and share your thoughts on this idea of power and and, and its importance to what you're trying to do and and what communities are trying to do in order to promote change
2: yeah sure I'd be happy to jump in there I believe it's really really important to allow forgive me for lack of a better term but allow the service users if you like the people who are on the receiving end of the treatment to actually have a voice because ultimately I feel like things before anyways used to happen in silos and the doctors and the nurses and and then everyone else I know they have everybody's best interests at heart but it was all done up there and us as patients we didn't have a clue we were just on the receiving end of it and and that was it but I feel like through the power of social media and just being able to finally find our voices well not even finally because there are people who have been doing this for a really long time but I just feel like there's just been such a shift in the world since you know the murder of George Floyd and and the and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement that allowed campaigns such as ourselves because we we actually have been running prior to Black Lives Matter but we've only really just been able to grab everyone's attention in the past few months I would say but yeah it's really really important because when you're spreading that message and you're letting you know especially in our case with the campaign when you're letting Black mothers know kind of speak up use your voice if you can't speak up let someone else speak up for you, you know the steps that we have. We're having such great feedback from women, pregnant women who have now had their babies and said, "Oh, look, I've i used your steps, and I think it's amazing." Or, you know, I, I I didn't feel like I could speak up before, and now I'm speaking up. Or, I've shown the health the the steps to the health professional, my my midwife. I didn't feel like she was listening to me, and now I've actually shown these steps, and and I feel like I've got some kind of control over what's going on because you know now we have that understanding. So when we hear things like that, we're like, you know, it's. Really really important to put the power back into the hands of the patient wherever possible and allowing them to know, like just letting them know that you know you do have a voice and 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 do use it because it can ultimately change things we don't have to do things the way they have always been done we do now have a voice and we can speak i think eden agrees
0: In listening to both of you and to Carol talking, what's striking to me, maybe if I think of your five points with the Royal College, is that they are the basis of all good healthcare provision. Step one is listen if a pregnant woman expresses concern. And it seems so straightforward. You've got a positive reception from the Royal College that you've immediately reached people, that there is this appetite for tools to address discrimination that we all know exists structure and inequality that we all know exists but for, for lots of healthcare providers i think they're apprehensive about bringing it up they maybe don't have the language or the or the way of dealing with it and they may not even be aware that this is an issue and it, it, it seems maybe i was feeling a bit gloomy when we went into this conversation but actually the way you're talking is so positive and it does seem like these tools are very desired by the by the people you're giving them to is is that the sense you get that there is an appetite within the healthcare professionals and the public health community at large for the things that you're giving them?
2: A lot of midwives and a lot of health professionals are like, we didn't even know this was a thing. We didn't even know. Like, a lot of people associate maternal mortality and, and, and the inequalities we see with America. And it's something that's huge in America, not knowing that this is something that's happening right now in the UK as we speak. It's so important. It's so important. And by offering,
3: I won't say a solution, but with our six steps that we have for the women, we are, you know, offering them support and giving them steps that they can take. And this is not us blaming the women, but that they can take just to feel empowered, for, for them to even advocate for themselves during their pregnancy and then the fact that we you know we joined up with the positive birth company to offer black women their digital and hitting the birth package which is worth 40 pounds but um 100 black women get it for free every month so we're kind of offering a solution so we're not just talking about the negative thing that's happening or kind of saying, okay, this is what's happening to black women, but here's what you can do to kind of prepare yourself for pregnancy and to make it less anxious.
0: Carol, I think if you say to a healthcare professional, you know, part of your job today is to address structural inequality in the healthcare system, uh, a lot of people are already feeling pretty maxed out by their jobs. And yet, the thing that you're asking them to do is listen and not make assumptions or that that's at least one of the things that you're describing do you you feel quite optimistic about the ability of I suppose public health or at least the healthcare professionals that you're you're talking about to make positive change not just within a generation but kind of rapidly
4: so yes and no so um (laughs) I
0: think (laughs) I'm not trying to force an optimistic answer on you well maybe I was but I shouldn't
4: I think that the the they're mostly very invested but so for example if I take the diabetes study that I've just completed we interviewed healthcare professionals and a lot of them said that they were giving bad care even though they didn't want to so their local communities often very disadvantaged had multiple jobs worked during the day worked in the evening couldn't come to the clinic to get healthcare really couldn't focus on their diet so as I said it was diabetes they couldn't focus on a good diet because they were too busy just working and the staff wanted to give them time to help them to self-manage but they were driven by incentivization so it's quite a managerialist culture within healthcare and so they wanted to get their quaff points quality outcome points I've forgotten what the f stands for sorry but
0: evidently none of us know
4: (laughs) so so they wanted to get their quaff points so that they could give basic care and so what they were doing was actually just forcing the local population to come in to have their blood pressure monitored putting pressure on them to do that so that they could get money from the government and that was an opportunity cost loss because they then didn't have the time to do what they really wanted to do which is listen to their patients so there is work to do still on that and one of the things I do in my research therefore is to it's not just listening to the patient it's getting the patient and the healthcare professionals together to work out solutions that are are going to be feasible in practice, but that aren't going to be compromises for the patients. So I think that was something that Sanuki and Chloe just touched on as well and what they were saying. It's got to be a discussion between everyone, an equal discussion. And that's what this participatory co-production work Uh, strives to do it uses things like art-based methods so that the healthcare professionals aren't in a position of power they don't have the expertise in those methods and so everyone is on an equal footing when they then discuss them.
1: I think that's such a really nice way to come back to that point around power actually Carol that's one of the things that needs to happen is also an equalization of power between practitioners and service users and so one ways we do some of the ways we do that is sort of creating positions of discomfort for practitioners and giving them a space that they're not really used to to navigating. And another way that Tanuki and Chloe highlight so well is the importance of creating bottom-up empowerment for women by giving them tangible things they can use in conversation so they feel more powerful in those spaces. But also something that is really important and, and coming out in both of those sort of last responses is The ways in which we need receptive political and social environments for that change to happen. And so COVID opens up a space to have different conversations about inequalities because it overlaps within these big political moments like the murder of George Floyd in the United States and the Black Lives Matter movement gaining prominence in that space and and, in discourses and also the importance of wider health system structures to make sure they're creating incentives in the right ways to open up spaces for participation that actually matter. And so I think this conversation has really highlighted for me the importance of thinking about power in all its different forms and and manifestations and how that is one of the things we need to do in order to disrupt things is to be doing that work around power in lots of different ways, through lots of different pathways and processes, establishing alliances where we didn't think that they might have happened before. This has been really great, guys. We like to wrap up our our episodes by asking guests to think about a piece of of an an artifact, sort of a piece of art or music or poetry that it, that has helped disrupt your thinking or your perspectives. And it could be something this month, or it could be in your entire life, but something that sort of was the beginning of that disruptive thought. And it would be. Great if you guys could share that with us just as we wrap up today. Tunika, you go first.
2: I would say an artifact that's helped me get to where I am. My two very different birthing experiences. My first, my son, 2017, was not great, and which is what led me to the Five Times More campaign and starting that. But also, I've given birth to my daughter literally just in April, just gone, in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of lockdown, a really scary and anxious time. And I ended up having a really great experience, um, actually. There she goes. She's stuck under a chair right now. Um, (laughs) She's finally on the move. But it was a really good experience for me because I felt empowered. I knew my body. I knew what to expect. I felt like I could safely give birth to my daughter, because I had the knowledge and I felt like if I needed to I could have spoken to the health professional in a way that would lead her to make me to to make her understand what I was trying to say but I didn't need to in the end she was lovely she was brilliant she really listened to me and I had a very 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 positive experience giving birth to my daughter despite everything that was going on so yes those two experiences have definitely led me to feel more passionate about what i'm doing and
1: where i am today great carol
4: do you have one an artifact that that has inspired me well um it's a photograph of my four sons i have four sons two of whom were from my first husband who was indian so two of them are half indian two of my sons are disabled and so they have experienced lots of issues through their lives and every day they get me to question everything Every day we have conversations about inequality issues, and so they are the inspiration for everything that I do, and I take back everything that I do. If I'm writing a grant application, I go back to them first, I listen to them so that they're my mini service users, they're my mini people that, that I need to listen to, and so they're um, my first sounding, my little pilot.:
1: That's amazing.: Chloe,
3: I have one that's a bit cheesy.
1: We love cheesy. Yeah, we really love it. It's easier the better.
3: Mine is knowing that we're supporting and, and helping black women, especially when black women, you know, talk about how much our steps have supported them and helped them. I think that really inspires me and to Nuka to carry on the work that we're doing, especially as this is, we do this full time and we actually do it because we were passionate about this. You know, we don't get paid for anything. We just do it because we're actually passionate and really want to support women. Hi, hi, so much. I'll just
0: come in. I have to say, that isn't very cheesy. I thought you were oh. going to say, like, my ABBA Gold CD or something. Like, that <laughs> feels really sincere and meaningful.
1: <laughs> You've been listening to Public Health Disrupted. This episode was presented by myself, Rochelle Burgess, and Zan Vantelliken, produced by UCL Health of Public and edited by Karis Bradley. Our guests today were Chinuke, Chloe and Dr. Carol Rivers in UCL.
0: If you would like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Health of the Public, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash health dash of dash public forward slash This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everybody.